first of all, congratulations on a, a dazzling piece of work. Oh, thank um, you very much. Which dazzles just as brightly second time viewing, I'd have to say. Um, I'm sure it's got lots of things you want to ask, but we will cover some basics first. Sure. Um, the imposter made, I mean, such a big impact, many awards, BAFTA, etc. And you assume that you're then offered lots of possibilities. Um, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do in terms of still working in documentary, going into narrative, doing a big movie, a small movie? And where did that then take you to this becoming the one that you, Ooh, you devoted however many years to? Um, well, it's, it was great to win the the debut thing, the, the best, but it's also with that comes a little bit of, oh no, everyone's going to want me to, you know, watch, <laughs> want me to do something good to follow that up. And so, and, and you know, and the imposter was a doc, obviously, and, and albeit, I'm sure there are probably people in the doc chapter who would refute that, but it was, and, and um, it was also, uh, weirdly, it, it ended up having this, this unexpected life and I did get offered you know some quite big kind of movie movies and which was really flattering and um, and I you know and some of them have still have, have now been made and I'm like wow god dodged the bullet on that one but um, some <laughs> of them uh, yeah there were and also it was kind of you know that whole thing of getting taken out to LA and doing that whole thing of um, meeting fabulous people and drinking bottled water with um, movie stars and all of that is 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 really seductive and but then and I had this moment of of clarity and there was one movie which I won't talk about but which I got very close to signing on for with a very big star and that was all really exciting and then I had this moment of, of flying back and, and of being about to get on and I'm sure I've told you this of being about to get on the on the plane and, and suddenly realizing that actually you know that's two years probably minimum that you know that I would have to live with that story. And it wasn't a story that I felt needed to be told that badly, and that on its best day, I would probably, you know, if I didn't completely fuck it up, it would probably be a movie that I would want to watch on a plane. And then I thought, <laughs> that's not really not the highest level. Yeah, and, but but you know, so so, and with this, this was a story that I found and thought was, you know, to begin with, I thought it was a great yarn. I didn't know that it was more than that. I thought it was, I thought it was um, a kind of, you know, it was a comedy of errors and it was also, it felt sort of, you know, ev everything about it felt kind of unusual and there was a big unanswered question about it which was to do with the why. You know, everything I read about was sort of, you know, it was fascinating. It became a good, you know, the basis of a great kind of caper movie but was there anything beyond that? And it wasn't until I started to um, exchanged letters with, with the real guys who at that point were, were some way into quite a long prison sentence that I suddenly thought, well, maybe actually this is more than just a good, a good caper story. You know, is it a kind of a story of our time in a way? It felt that a lot of the motivations that they described were about this need to be kind of a somebody you know, and, that, and it felt to me that actually po possibly more relevant now than it was at the time in that, you know, there is this huge pressure, I think, to be, 
you know, that, that success has shifted from, you know, what these young men parents had, which, which is a lot what the American dream look, looks like, to something whereby, you know, it's crucial to leave a mark on the world, and it almost doesn't matter whether that's a good mark or a bad mark, but it felt like, you know, success has less to do with status in the way that their parents might have thought about it, and more to do with, you know, are you going to have a Wikipedia page written about you, and, and, and that sort of thing, and so... So much of the drivers for you know, you know what they had, what they were doing, and what they were looking for seemed to be about this very lost generation of young men who were sort of searching in all the wrong places for an identity. And, and and it was because of that that I thought I have to find a way to include them in the film. And and so I, I didn't really think of it whether it was going to be a doc or it just sort of thought. I, I guess I was thinking, you know, is there a new way to tell a true story? We haven't haven't quite seen and that and that in doing so it might be greater than the sum of its parts in a way you, you get a bit more skin in the game because you're never completely off in movie world where it doesn't really affect you or something um, and what what kind of response did you get from them initially because was it just an out of the blue thing of writing to them or did you have someone that kind of eased that so they you who you were, or what you'd done, or um, I worked with Poppy Dixon, who with whom who was my co-producer on The Imposter, and we, I sent her down to kind of introduce herself in person, and and I sent letters and sort of explaining who I was and you know why I was interested, and and um, and I I think there was a lot that they were deeply ashamed of, and and it had been devastating for their families and devastating within the community you know this small kind of Pleasantville where everything is you know white picket fences and it's all you know everything's sort of behind closed doors it, it had been a, a real shock and uh, and the parents had been kind of become pariahs and all of this stuff so they weren't keen to revisit it you know and and, and they, they, you know, I think they took some took some time thinking about it, and I made clear what my vision for it was, and and also BJ, the librarian, you know, she also didn't really know what the story, what you know, how it was going to be presented, and so she took a while to come on board as well. Um, and did you have any misgivings in that, in many respects, the the, the kind of story of their lives becomes a movie in their in their heads? Mm. And here you are coming along, almost making that a reality for them that there's now going to be a movie about what they've done. Yeah, I mean, it was something that, that Poppy and I talked about quite a bit. I think because I was always so clear in my mind that it was going to be, you, you know, that the structure, and this is something that Ulla and I talked about a lot, you know, that the form and the structure of the movie was going to mirror their kind of descent into a, a movie fantasy that, that we, we kind of encouraged the audience to sort of also sort of get lost in that fantasy a little bit up to a very clear point and I you know and I wrote in the script you know a very kind of I suppose decisive moment where all of the glamour and all of the kind of the, the potential uh, gloss of the fantasy is is is, is kind of removed and they crossed this line that should not be crossed and and that we're also sort of complicit because we also kind of want to know what's on the other side of that line and we're thrown over it and then it was always going to be there was never a question that, that what 
the film looks and feels like on the other side of that line, they're not going to come away looking heroic in any way. And um, and so I, and I thought that that sort of the the honesty of that and, and portraying that would outweigh the fact that you know yes they were in search of you know notoriety and all of these things, but actually I think you see the at, at what cost that came because they're still sort of shells of of themselves in a way. Um, what stage did did you come on board and what was the um, attraction of the project? to you in terms of you know, there are different ways that you know there's different elements in the film that need to be treated visually in, in different ways well I came on board um, about a year before the filming ish almost um, when Bart had already spoken to the before interviewed them and incorporated this into the script. So I got a very fully developed script that had, you know, all of the interviews developed into it. And you know, once I read that it was clearly an incredibly fully formed script that you could visualize and go, wow, this is quite something. So all of those things that you see up there where you cut from the fantasy version to the real version, all that that was all included in the script. So you could really look at that and go, okay, so is that working for us or not? And, you know, there's very few that aren't in there. Um, so at that point, we started looking around, trying to find a place to uh, film it, because... Yeah, trying to find a university that would let us <coughs> run riot on campus was not easy at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the thing that... We thought we'd be off to the races, and then we went, and Ulla and I literally scoured, like... Half, you know, we went to Canada, we went across in finding a university where they were going to let us kind of do what we did and, you know, that, that took a long time. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, Google Earth going yeah. on there. <laughs> um, did you look at a lot of heist movies? Because obviously that's kind of what informs them. Or do you kind of know lots of heist movies anyway? Or the conventions of them? Or? Well, so Bart had a, a reel already, which was literally like sort of what's what of brilliant movies, I thought, already. So he made a sort of mood reel for this is what I want the movie to be. You know, in a sort of... That was partly for a, as a sales pitch, because everyone yeah. was like, you know, the script had, you know, it was a really unconventional script because the real voices were in it, and you could hear the finances kind of going, well, you know, sort of behind, out of my issue, if, he, if that doesn't really work, can we just take all of those dot bits out and then we'll just have this movie, and that would be quite cool, wouldn't it? And... <laughs> And I was sort of took the you know Warren's line, which was you're either in or you're out. This is how it's going to be. And we didn't shoot it in a way that would have you know we would have been in a real pickle if if uh, it had got to the stage of trying to because for me without those real voices it was a much smaller, much more disposable story. You probably would have imagined that we'd kind of fictionalise those characters to make them sympathetic, and so um, yeah, it was very much in the script. And so because of that, I cut together a a kind of mood reel, which was a sort of mini precy of the narrative. Not, not with anything that, that reflected the narrative, but just emotionally it sort of reflected the journey from kind of naturalistic to kind of getting lost in a fantasy and losing touch with the reality and, and then getting towards the tropes of, you know, more commercial movies. You know, as, as you see, we, we go from handheld and, you know, much more natu naturalistic stuff to much more kind of Ocean's Eleven, lots of steady cam, lots of track. 
and the idea of that. Crying, split screen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All of those kind of things were in this this reel that, that I kind of put together. And I didn't watch it. We watched a, a few. In, in, we had this expression yeah. on set which was in their minds it was Ocean's Eleven and in reality it was going to be Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> so that was the one thing I made all of the cast watch was Dog Day Afternoon. Does anybody have things they want to ask? Hog time? Anything like that? Yes. Well, I mean, congratulations, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece of work, but just in, in terms of the actual heist itself, that, that sustained level of panic, and not to cut it that well, I mean, not, 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 sorry, not, not to cut it that often, but to have these very long shots of handheld jitter panic, was, was that really difficult to achieve in, in terms of maintaining that absolute level of, of total adrenaline? <laughs> well, I guess uh, the thing was, the actors were incredibly good at doing, you know, once we got into that room, we had about a day and a half to film that, that to host itself in that room. And uh, we basically did it as long stretches of how long can we go before it kind of... But what actually, you know, the, yeah. the, the heist is divided in two sections because the, the heist proper, yeah. when he comes in the room... That is all, the first half before he physically grabs her, what is in the room, that's all kind of meticulously shot on track and, um, you know, dot, and it was all very, very, and that was quite a laborious process. That took longer almost than the actual kind of chaos and panic because what I wanted to do was have this very kind of precise, sort of almost kind of claustrophobic quality of movement. And then the the second that he makes physical contact, which was the moment where they do this thing they can't take back. And I felt in talking to Warren particularly that the split second that he physically touched her, he regretted it instantly. And he could not... And, and both of them wanted to... It's almost like they'd become bad people in that microsecond and they wanted it back they, and they couldn't. And then it was kind of fight or flight. So so, so that, that was in two sections that bit and then all of the stuff afterwards with the lift because there was no lift we built that and that's in three or four different locations shot over three or four different weeks and then when they come out of the building and they get in the car and then all of that getaway stuff that we shot before we shot before we sh we we actually and that infuriated me because coming from docks you know and I was like well I understand we can't shoot everything in order but what I'm going to shoot the aftermath and, and have to calibrate that level of panic and adrenaline and kind of, you know, like I, what happens if we, you know, how do we moderate the, the level of, of sort of, you know, panic and chaos to a, to a point where we're not kind of doubling up what we've done before? I, I felt that it was going to be... So that was tricky. And, and, if, and really, the actors were just unbelievable. You know, we had them running around the block, we had them doing press-ups, we had them up and down the stairs, and then they would fly in, and we would just say, action, and it, so, so, you know, and they, I think, being young and kind of energetic, they loved the fact that they could kind of get to that level, but it was, um, you know, coming from a place of not, you know, working not in this fiction world, that I found, um, you know, very tricky to get hold of, very frustrating, you know, how we're going to be shooting that scene which immediately follows them breaking out, we're going to do that three weeks before we do the actual robbery, it was really hard. 
So yes. Um, yeah, uh, congratulations on the film. I thought it was great. It looked great. I wanted to ask a little bit about how you worked with your composer and your music supervisor. Sure. So the question is about the composer and music supervisor. So I, I've worked with Anne uh, for, in TV for years, and then we made The Imposter together, and Nicotin, who's just a brilliant, brilliant, um, you know, super intuitive composer. And I guess the way I work is, is the language is all um, kind of, and, and this goes for, this, for the commercial, you know, the, the music supervisor stuff. Most, I, most of the tracks, the source, you know, the commercial tracks I choose, and often they're in, they're things that we play beforehand and that, that sort of almost... On set. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll kind of, not dictate, but we'll give a good sense of what the rhythm and the energy of the sequence, especially because we were doing a lot of montage stuff, so to give a feeling of what the rhythm of that would be, I always think it's really helpful to kind of have a track in mind. And then the danger is you fall in love with the doors and it costs 160 grand or something, right? And then you have to go begging to the... I mean, I tried 90 different tracks, probably more that to, to replace that doors track and just couldn't because we'd sort of shot it with that in mind and I'd cut it with that in mind. and. But, but really, um, I guess in answer to your question, it's all about kind of thinking about what is the, you know, the emotional, you know, how is it supporting it? Not leading it, but supporting it. And so, you know, we don't talk about, uh, like I will ha ha go, you know, that those strings are giving me, making me feel like he is too, like, empowered here, or he's too triumphant, and actually shouldn't he feel lonelier, and shouldn't... So it's really that kind of language of, rather than like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be nice if this sound, you know, or, or we were using these, that kind of instrumentation, it's really about, you know, what are those things doing to either support or detract from um, the, you know, the, the emotional quality of the scene. And generally, we wanted it to, you know, this thing of going from, going into movie world and the score getting bigger and more orchestrated and more instrumentation and all the rest of it to this point where it all drops away and we're back into something which feels very pared back and uncomfortable and rudimentary and electronic and we end up using the London Contemporary Orchestra to record and they so a lot of what we Anne had written is, is stuff that actually for a for a musician, I guess, is really hard to, you know, it's all about discordant stuff and strings which are really kind of um, scratched up and, and, and I guess they're the experts and, you know, they do a lot of um, Johnny Greenwood stuff and all of that kind of stuff. So it was about, you know, everything from the production design to cinematography to the colour palette was all supposed to mirror their journey into movie world and then them ending up in this place which... Where, where we're sort of smashed back to reality, I guess. You know. Yes. And I was just wondering if there was ever a point where <coughs> if any of the real characters had said no, you would have dropped the project, or could you have told it without one of the protagonists saying yes, and then who said yes first? Was that like a conventional thing of Warren's doing it, so you should... Yeah, well, initially, <laughs> um, the the... That scene in the car where they have the big blow-up, that was the end of the friendship, really. I mean, it was the end of the friendship between Chaz and them, particularly, and they hadn't seen each other. They'd seen each other in court, and the first time that they all were together in the same room was in, as at Sundance, and the 
the premier table, okay? Um, and originally, Eric Warren and Spencer said they didn't want to be part of anything that Chaz was involved with, and then Chaz said he didn't want to be part of anything. They and in the end, um, I think they, I guess Chaz got to the point where he sort of felt like if they were all going to do it, what if they all ganged up on him and told something that, you know, and so then he wanted to do it. And I mean, the, the tricky thing was, was I wrote the screenplay based on all the things they wrote in their letters and emails from prison. But of course, on the day when we went to shoot the interviews, it suddenly dawned on them that, oh, here we are bringing this story back up that's really had a hugely detrimental effect on everyone's families. And, and so they didn't say a lot of the things which I was convinced they would say a version of, they didn't say. And then they said other things which I hadn't anticipated. And so then I had to go back and kind of rewrite the script around, you know, and kind of pause the production and rewrite around, you know, the truth. And I, and I also had to throw away, because I went in there sort of partly with an expectation that they would say a version of what they said in their letters. And so then you're kind of like, oh, please say a version of that. But, the, you know, the last thing you want to do is turn your documentary contributors into actors because then you lose the thing that they're really, the only thing they're there to do, which is context and, and I guess, authenticity. And, um, and so then I had to kind of throw the script away and go right back to the beginning. And, you know, so they, all, they were all kind of on board. The, the only person who uh, I probably wouldn't have wanted to make it without, or at least without her blessing, would have been BJ. Because, um, just because obviously she's the victim, and if there'd been any sense of her being misrepresented, and, and one of the gratifying things that's come out of it is that she, you know, I went to show her the film on, you know, on route to sun, not, you know, I showed all of them because I, not because I was going to change it, but if she had really hated it or found something um, misrepresented, I probably would have changed it until she'd been happy, but we watched it in her house with her, her husband who fell asleep like, like about <laughs> halfway through, so, <coughs> and she got quietly hammered on Cosmopolitans and like, I was like under about four of her cats and then... She loved it, and then she said, and then she wrote me a letter, having seen it for the second time with her peers in Lexington, and said, "You know what? The best thing to come out of this is that I feel completely liberated from the whole thing now." She's like, "People know about it; they understand what I went through, and and I can even begin to forgive these guys because I think, in watching the movie, she realised for the first time that they were kind of idiots rather than criminals, you know, and so that made a big." So, so she's really grateful that for the movie, which, which, and it, there was a point where I thought, well, I, I wouldn't make it without at least her giving a kind of okay of it, you know. Um, did you encourage or discourage the actors from having contact with the people they were playing? Yeah, I, I, I discouraged them because. I mean, they were obviously keen to have contact with the real guys because, I guess, as an actor, if you're playing a real person, you know, why wouldn't you want to go and spend time? But, but I felt quite strongly that, you know, they were, they were sort of 12 years older than, than when it happened. Most of that time had been spent behind bars. So they were very different people. And, and what I wanted to avoid was the act. Because in my mind, this wasn't imposter. It was like the inversion of this. It was going to be... The actors were the ones who were going to be driving everything and driving the narrative, and these guys were there 
more kind of like older and younger rather than real and not real. And I didn't want the actors sort of becoming beholden to, um, you know, because they're all really nice guys to spend time with. And I could imagine Evan and Warren sitting down and Warren going, you know, just don't make me out to be too much of a dick. Or, you know, like, or, you know, or I wasn't, you know, and if, if he'd said, and Evan is super method in his approach, and if, if Warren had said to him, you know, I wasn't violent, or I didn't swear at her, or whatever. Then Evan, I would have been very. Yeah, he would have found that difficult. And so I just wanted them to be complete. Yeah, I wanted them to find them to find their versions based on what I had put in the script and conversations we would have. And then, and I think they understand. They re now they really understand the value and, and appreciate it. But at the time, I think particularly Evan, who actually completely ignored me and <laughs> and, and reached out to uh, Warren on Twitter, and they kind of started this relationship which I put the kibosh on but you know because it you know I think if you're playing a real person you want to do you know I didn't want them imitating I had no interest in finding lookalikes I think you commented and a few people have commented this is probably the first movie where the actors are less good looking than the real people you know <laughs> just an observation <laughs> but it's true I mean quite often you see um, you know, dramatizations yeah. of true events with fairly glamorous looking people, and then you know, little black and white photos come up at the end, and you think, well, they, yeah. they got an upgrade. And there was a point where, 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 when we were like getting it, where we were looking at casting takes, and you know, and you know, we did a lot of this together and had those discussions, where the script suddenly caught on in Hollywood, and we had the option of, I'm not going to name names, but we had the option of the biggest stars of that age group, and. For me, the problem, I think you agreed as well, the problem was, you know, that would have added a, a kind of layer of baggage and a complication that we didn't want. And I, I just wanted these very real, kind of authentic faces. Um, last few questions. Yes. Did Warren go to Amsterdam? Isn't that the movie, really? Did Warren go to Amsterdam? I mean... As Eric said, you know, he's never going to be... My personal feeling, having sat there and done the interviews with him, was I think he did go. I'm just not sure he met anyone there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. Um, there was someone at the very back there. Yeah. Sorry, it's a true story. The thing that runs through it is the unreliable narrator. But amongst them all, you, none of them can get the story straight. The story that you have there... Well, I mean, I guess, you know, right there is is part of the why of the form of, you know, why wanting to do it. Like, because, you know, they're, they're you know, not, not only are they unreliable narrators, but, you know, me memory is, is pretty unreliable as well. And, um, and I guess, you know, in the course of those interviews, you know, there were crucial things that they remembered differently, you know. And, and so part of, I guess, part of the thinking is that, and you know, and, and probably that you know the opening caption card you mentioned was was a, a slight reaction to the you know that thing of we we go and see these movies constantly and it says based on a true story. You know, I went and saw Black Klansman last night and you know then read about just what an enormous fictionalization that whole story is. And and I think we all have that slight feeling. And then at the end you wait for the photos of the real people and then you Google, you know, furiously. You know, what did Molly from Molly's Game really? 
speak like and how she's so similar to Mark Zuckerberg and the social network and all of those kind of things. And, you know, and, and I, I sort of thought that actually why don't we pull the curtain back on some of that and invite you, the audience, and us into the process of how these things get remembered and misremembered and fictionalised and, and also and, and sort of making the audience aware, you know, setting out your stool, which is that, yes, it's as true as these people are going to allow us, you know, to, you know, it's, it's, they are, it's their testimony. I mean, you know, certainly having shown it to all of the people who were there, they all feel it was a very accurate portrayal. But the other really thing that's interesting thing that's starting to happen is that the movie is now replacing their actual memories of <laughs> what what actually happened, you know, and that that's something that happened with the imposter as well. Um, so you know, there, you know, this was a movie about life imitating movies in a way, and so part of it was to try and find a form that would ref reflect that. And the reason for including those, you know, making a virtue because it, if you're you know if you're doing a traditional screenplay, you're going to choose one version of you know, did it happen in Central Park? Did it, you know, did it happen in a car or at the party? And if you're the producer, it's easy. You choose the cheap version. <laughs> and if you're, you know, or if you're the director, you're like, or the cinematographer, it's like, let's have the cool-looking version or whatever. <laughs> and actually, you know, I thought, well, let's let's be let's be more open about that. And and by flagging up those inconsistencies, we're also sort of planting the seeds of. You know this other question, which which your question was about, which is how much you know Warren is a consummate fantasist, you know, and he was busy creating the solutions for any for all the obstacles that Spencer was waiting to to bring the whole thing to an end, and you know, and and how much did he actually just fabricate all of that? You know, he he created a a kind of fiction for them to inhabit, and they all, I think, they were more in love with that than they were with really. Believing, I don't think they ever really believed that they were going to go through with it, and if they did, that they would get away with it, and they would have the money, and you know, I don't think that was ever something they really thought of as a reality. Maybe with the exception of Chaz, who really wanted the money and thought it, was, you know. <laughs> but I think that was it, and that was kind of why I thought it was uh, a story, you know, worth telling in a way. Um, time is against us. Um, I would just. Uh end by saying thanks again to STX International for the preview. Uh, the film opens nationwide on September the 7th, uh, so spread the word, encourage others to go. Um, it's also never too early to remind you, of course, this is eligible for BAFTA nominations in yeah. all categories, so keep it in your thoughts when it gets to that stage of the year, and join me in thanking <laughs> Director Bart Lady. Thank you very much.